ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. Coming up, Tasmanian Indigenous lawyer Michael Mansell on why he is voting no in the upcoming referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. First to a unique federal court decision where a judge has been held personally liable for the false imprisonment of a man who appeared before him in a family law dispute. Known only by a pseudonym, Mr Stradford, a father of two, was awarded $300,000 after Judge Salvatore Vasta jailed him for contempt of court. Now, the damages will be paid partly by the state of Queensland, partly by the federal government, and also partly by Judge Vasta himself. I should warn that this conversation contains discussion of suicidal thoughts. Mr Stradford's lawyer is Sam Tierney from Canberra law firm Ken Cush and Associates. Sam Tierney, how significant is this ruling? The ruling uh, delivered by Justice Wigney in the Federal Court of Australia is, I think it would be fair to say, a landmark case. Is it the first time that a judge has been found personally liable in Australia for, for, for paying damages for, for, for this kind of false imprisonment? Uh, there's been examples of state and territory uh, magistrates and lower court judges being uh, ordered to pay damages in certain circumstances. But as far as we're aware, it's the first time a federal circuit court judge uh, has been found personally liable. So Justice Wigney of the federal court described what happened to Mr Stratford as a gross and obvious irregularity of process. He was detained and imprisoned for contempt following what could only be described as little more than a parody of a court hearing. Tell me, why why did your client appear before Justice Salvatore Vasta on the 6th of December 2018 and why did the judge lock up your client? Uh, so Mr Stratford and Mrs Stratford, his now ex-wife, were involved in um, family law proceedings in the Federal Circuit Court, as it then was, uh, and in particular uh, a property adjustment proceedings under the Family Law Act earlier in 2018 in relation to the disclosure of the financial positions of the two parties. That matter ultimately came uh, before his honour on the 6th of December 2018 in relation to alleged non-compliance with those earlier orders. As Justice Wigney has now uh, found, the process that then unfolded on the 6th of December 2018 um, ultimately led to uh, Judge Vasta sentencing uh, Mr Stratford um, to a period of 12 months of imprisonment for what was described as contempt. Um, unfortunately, as Justice Wigney has now found, uh, none of the proper and due processes of law uh, were followed prior to um, sending Mr Stradford to jail. So what happened was, was that there was this ongoing family law dispute uh, before what was then known as the, the Federal Circuit Court. The judge had previously asked Mr Stratford to provide detail about his financial situation. Um, when he appears before him on on the 6th of December 2018 and doesn't produce the documents that the judge wants and thought that he would bring, he became very angry and declared that Mr Stratford was in contempt of court and sentenced him on the spot to 12 months prison. That's what happened in a nutshell, yeah? That's correct, Damien, and um, uh, unfortunately uh, none of the 
required processes either under the Family Law Act nor the Federal Circuit Court rules as they then applied uh, were followed by Judge Vasta. In other words, he had no power to do this and no reason and didn't follow any processes in kind of metaphorically banging his gavel and sending him to prison for 12 months. That's correct, Damien. And um, as Justice Wigney has found, um, there was uh, unfortunately uh, simply no basis uh, for the imprisonment to uh, have been ordered or to have happened. So on the 6th of December 2018, your client is taken into custody. How long did he remain in custody and what was that experience like? Ultimately, Mr Stratford spent approximately seven days in total in uh, both custody of the Commonwealth Court Security Guards, MSS Guards, then with the Queensland Police um, before going to Queensland Corrective Services. Um, While seven days might not sound like a long time on the face of it, I think it would be safe to say that the experience Mr Stradford had during that detention was absolutely harrowing, including, for example, being placed at various times in in and out of handcuffs, um, transported in both police and corrective vans, Uh, During the time that he was in custody, he was um, strip-searched, subjected to being placed in cells with uh, agitated, drug-affected and other inmates. He also had the extremely disturbing experience of being placed in a pair of women's shorts while he was in the watch house, which obviously uh, didn't assist him in uh, getting on with his fellow inmates. And ultimately... Um, During the course of time that he was in there, he was subjected to threats of sexual assault. Uh, He was, in fact, assaulted by another inmate um, who attempted to strangle him in his uh, sleep and um, uh, got to the point um, uh, of actively actively considering taking his own life. And I think um, he's reported to have said that uh, it's only when he heard a, a song, um, which was his favourite of his daughters, that he kind of snapped out of that uh, that, that thinking, um, that, that suicidal ideation. Yeah, one of those uh, fortuitous moments um, where uh, a song that he knew was a favourite of his daughters um, pulled him back. So he, he, he experienced a, a lot of um, very bad things during that seven days. Absolutely, Damien. And I think um, on the face of it, seven days in detention does not sound like a long time, uh, but the uh, breadth and the uh, serious nature of what happened to him during that time certainly has left him with um, uh, serious and long-term uh, damage that's been done to his health. Physical health or mental health? Both, but particularly his mental health. And um, in that respect, it has to be borne in mind, um, of course, that This was his first time in detention. Um, The sort of incidents that he was subjected to during his time um, are not things that uh, the average member of the community uh, would be generally exposed to. And they're certainly things that um, uh, have had a very permanent and long-lasting effect on uh, Mr Stratford. So, so, so basically he gets locked up for seven days, he gets released pending an appeal, uh, and then that appeal is heard, I think, in February 2019. The full court of the family court overturns the contempt finding and is very critical of Justice Vasta, describing the decision to put him in jail as, quote, a gross miscarriage of justice and, quote, an affront to justice. Mr Stratford then becomes your client and and commences a wrongful imprisonment civil action that's just come down in your client's favour. Uh, what did the federal court find? What did, what did Justice Whitney of the federal court find in a nutshell? 
Uh, in a very comprehensive um, and extensive judgment, Justice Wigney has found that the Commonwealth of Australia and also the state of Queensland, who were the jailers and detainers of Mr Stradford, are liable. But also, Judge Baster himself is personally liable to Mr Stradford to pay compensation. And how unique is it for a judge to be found liable for false imprisonment? And on what basis did Justice Whitney come to that conclusion? Uh, it's, it's an extremely rare um, circumstance in which a judge can and, and is in fact found liable for unlawful imprisonment or indeed liable um, to any litigant who comes into their court. It is a situation where um, Justice Whitney had to delve uh, through approximately 400 years of uh, case law, both from England and Australia, um, to uh, divine what the common law is in relation to um, so-called inferior court judges in Australia. Inferior not being a disparaging comment on the court um, itself, but simply a description of um, the lower hierarchy courts. Ultimately, Justice Whitney found that the law in Australia is such that inferior court judges do not enjoy the common law protection of judicial immunity where they act uh, without or otherwise in excess of um, the jurisdiction that's given to them uh, by the law. And what's this distinction between superior and inferior courts about? Open up judges and magistrates in lower courts to, to this possible tort, but keep judges in the superior courts or the higher courts immune? Uh, the General thinking is, uh, and this takes some delving back into the deep, dark depths of uh, the development of the common law in England and Australia, superior courts, um, generally speaking, have always thought to um, have inherent powers and powers given to them by the constitution that allow them to act, uh, provided that they are doing so bona fide in good faith, as they see fit and as they see necessary without fear of recourse. The common law, as it's developed, has drawn a distinction between those sitting in those superior courts, such as the Supreme Court, High Court, for example, and uh, those that sit in, sit in the inferior courts, so in New South Wales, the local court, the magistrates' courts, things of that nature. The reason, generally speaking, is a matter of policy why those lower courts have not been afforded the common law protection, um, as Justice Whitney has found, is that ultimately those courts exist only with a limited range of powers and powers that they have to comply with very strictly, um, whereas Supreme Court, uh, superior court judges have that much broader jurisdiction and the right to do as they see fit, provided they're doing so within good faith. So Justice Vasta was deemed to be kind of operating in an, what was known as an inferior court or a lower court, and therefore he couldn't rely on this idea of uh, judicial immunity. But I understand in some jurisdictions there has been legislation which does extend judicial immunity to lower courts, but that hasn't been done at the Commonwealth level here in Australia because he was operating essentially in a family law court. That's correct, Damien. And um, it's notable that in most states and territories, um, the lower courts have now received statutory protections. And the statutory protections effectively give those lower court judges and magistrates a form of immunity, uh, which is akin to a superior court. What His Honour Justice Wigney has found, uh, though, is in the case of the Federal Circuit Court that there is no applicable statutory immunity. And in the circumstances where Judge Vasta 
has been found by the federal court to have acted without or in complete excess of his jurisdiction, then there is no uh, protection that he can uh, call in aid to defend this claim. Mm. So is it possible that um, the federal government could just simply uh, I mean, extend judicial immunity uh, to uh, um, what's known as inferior uh, courts in the federal jurisdiction? So, so next time this happens again, um, nobody will be entitled to compensation? Look, it's certainly something that the um, Commonwealth government can look at doing, um, and it certainly would have the power uh, just as the state and territory governments do and, in fact, have exercised um, to bring in these statutory protections. Whether or not, ultimately, those protections would extend to a case as rare and uh, unique as the current case of Mr Stratford um, would depend on the terminology of the legislation that was brought in. The, 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 the actual measure he took. In that the Commonwealth... Uh, the Commonwealth and the, because, you know, the Commonwealth were found liable because of the security guards were kind of in, in the Commonwealth court who took him into custody and uh, the Queensland government was found liable for false imprisonment because they actually housed him in their deten- their watch house and in their prison. But they would have argued, but look, we were just following a, a, a judicial uh, order here, which we thought was correct. So how can we be held liable for acting on a court order? The answer to that, Damien, is an interesting legal question um, about the uh, effect of an inferior court warrant being later set aside by a a higher hierarchy court. Um, Ultimately, that was one of the very complex legal matters that Justice Wigney had to grapple with in this case and is on a uh, found that the preponderance of authority, um, legal authority in Australia, means that an inferior court warrant, once it's set aside, is uh, void from the start. So effectively, even though uh, the MSS guards, the Queensland Police and the Queensland Corrective Officers had simply been doing their job, uh, that they couldn't then um, rely on that warrant um, once it had been uh, determined to be wrong by the higher court. So Queensland, the Commonwealth and Judge Vasta all have to contribute to the $300,000 of damages. And part of that total is $50,000 in exemplary damages payable by Judge Vasta. Basically, exemplary damages are intended to punish a defendant and deter similar conduct in the future of these these damages. Why did he do that? Uh, Look, I think... It's important to understand the um, award of or the basis of the award of damages that was made. And ultimately, um, the indication is that Justice Wigney formed the view that would be appropriate in um, or given the facts of this particular case uh, that Judge Vasta uh, should uh, be ordered to pay uh, a measure of exemplary damages, as Justice Wigney says, to ensure. Uh, that there's such a thoroughly unacceptable abuse of judicial power did not occur um, in the future or certainly that there was a deterrence from that happening. Um, So that's uh, the basis on which um, Justice Whitney made the determination that Judge Vasta would pay uh, those exemplary damages. Are you aware of other civil cases involving Judge Vasta? I am, Damien. Um, I act for uh, another gentleman, Mr Lee Jorgensen, who has proceedings in the federal court, which uh, were stayed pending the delivery of this decision. And are they 
are they also for false imprisonment? They are, and they relate to um, a uh, conviction and sentencing for contempt, which ultimately was overturned by the uh, full court of the federal court. How long did Mr Jorgensen stay in detention or in custody? Uh, He had a shorter period in detention than Mr Stradford, but obviously the specific facts of that case um, are still before the court and uh, not yet uh, been determined. I understand Judge Vasta is still a sitting judge. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Look, ultimately it's a matter for Judge Vasta and uh, the Commonwealth of Australia uh, to um, consider this judgment and uh, the position. Um, certainly Mr Stradford and myself respect the fact that all the parties involved in this litigation have appeal rights and given that we're inside the um, period for which um, any appeals might occur um, at this stage. Um, you know, those are matters for the judge uh, himself and for the Commonwealth of Australia um, to consider. Santini uh, from Canberra law firm uh, Ken Cash and Associates, who, who acted for Mr Stratford. Th- thank you. Thank you very much for speaking to the Law Report. Thank you for having me on, Damien. This case raises a number of issues. In a future program, we'll focus on the pros and cons of legislating a blanket judicial immunity and moves at the federal level to establish a judicial commission that can receive complaints about individual judges. I'm Damien Carrick. This is The Law Report. You can follow us at the ABC Listen app. Also available via the ABC Listen app is a brilliant new podcast with Fran Kelly and Carly Williams. The Voice Referendum Explained. It's a very clear and informative guide to the upcoming referendum. I do urge you to listen to it. Now, along with South Australia, Tasmania is said to be a key battleground in the upcoming referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. One Indigenous man who will be actively campaigning for a no vote is Tasmanian Aboriginal leader Michael Mansell, a Palawa man, lawyer and long-time activist. Michael Mansell is part of the Black Sovereignty Movement. I asked him why is he planning to vote no in the upcoming referendum? Because this is such a pathetic response from the federal government to the needs of Aboriginal people. You know, when you consider everything that's happened to us, surely we deserve something a lot better than an advisory body. The effect of this advisory body, instead of empowering Aboriginal people, is to say, oh, please, Mr White Man, pretty please, when you white people keep making decisions about the lives of Aboriginal people, will you allow us to formally advise you in making those decisions. I mean, this is 2023. This is not 1950. And so we should be talking about designated seats in the parliament. We should be talking about how the Commonwealth and the state are going to return lands to Aboriginal people. How are you going to empower local Aboriginal communities and how are you going to set up a national Aboriginal representative body that can raise resources and distribute resources on the basis of need. But instead of talking about any of those things, for the last decade or more, we've all been constrained by talking about this absurd, childish advisory body that doesn't confer any rights on Aborigines and does not impose any obligations on the Commonwealth Government or State Governments, and it's just not good enough. So, so why on earth would I support it? Okay, so so you feel that it doesn't go far enough. You feel that it's a, kind of a, a futile endeavour. But 
Uh, the, the Uluru Statement from the Heart talks about three goals, voice, treaty, truth. Even if your focus is on treaty, don't you see constitutional recognition and a voice as a step towards those, as a step towards treaty? Well, if someone could explain the connection between an advisory body, whether it's entrenched in the constitution or not, and the next step of sitting down talking to the Commonwealth Government about seats in Parliament or a treaty or truth-telling, then my ears are open because Albanese has said, if this thing fails, he's not going to muck around with it anymore. And he, he said in winter last year, 2022, that he will only deal with either a treaty or the referendum during this term of parliament. And there's no guarantee he's going to get in after the next election. So, so where's the guarantee that an advisory body, if it's established, is going to lead on to these other things? Many would argue, many would say that the, the, the fight for Indigenous rights is, is incremental. It's a, long, it's a long game. I agree with that, Damien, but I think that you've got it back to front. I agree it's a long game, but it's not incremental. Don't forget, uh, when the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody gave its final report around about 1990, before Mabo, they said the reason for Aboriginal disadvantage across the country was the extraordinary extent to which white people dominated Aboriginal people. And they said, unless you get rid of that domination, you cannot overcome the disadvantage. In 1997, ATSIC was already running. It was a form of Aboriginal self-management. But when ATSIC was disbanded in 2004, we haven't incrementally moved on to the next level. We've gone backwards. And that's there why was... the argument would be that the, the Uluru, uh, the, the Uluru uh, statement is about walking together, uh, Australians coming together, and a yes vote would mean Indigenous and non-Indigenous people coming together, stretching out their hands to each other, and that would form a platform, a foundation for treaty and truth, which are the other two elements of, of Lo lovely words. the Uluru lovely words, statement. Lovely words, but meaningless in, in, in harsh political terms. This body that, that you and I are talking about in the referendum cannot deliver any services, cannot raise any resources. It cannot build a single house for a homeless Aboriginal community. In fact, because it's a creature of the federal parliament, it is restricted to commenting on federal policy. And most of the of the day-to-day -day issues that affect Aboriginal people, for example, the high imprisonment rates in Western Australia, or Palaszczuk's imprisoning of Aboriginal children who are 10 years old, they're state matters. Policing is a state matter. Housing, health, schools are all state matters outside the scope of the uh, on, advisory on, body. On, it's on, a step backwards. On the back of a yes vote, you could build a momentum, build a conversation, a national sense of shared purpose, a walking together. A and if there yes. is a, a no vote in this coming referendum, there, there won't, there, there'll be a collective view in the population and in government that Australians don't accept a voice to parliament. Why would anyone think they would embrace a treaty. 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a very logical argument, uh, which is another reason why don't muck around, don't muck around with the constitution, don't muck around with the referendum. The normal way to advance the rights of any Australian group, any group of people in Australia, is through legislation. And it is, while it is true that legislation can be changed by any subsequent parliament, don't forget the Racial Discrimination Act has been around since 1975. The Native Title Act was passed in 1993. The, the National Aboriginal Heritage Legislation was passed in 1984. So... There is this reality that legislation, once it's passed, tends to remain in place. And although it is possible to change it, most of the time it doesn't get changed. There are people, though, who are very much involved in the, in the treaty processes all around the country, like the co-chairs of Victoria's Treaty Assembly, uh, Reuben Berg and Ngara Murray. Uh, they are negotiating with the Victorian government, or, or the, 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 there is a, a process going on in Victoria. They are advocating for a yes vote. They say it's fine. It's fine. But, I mean, they I see it as complementary. Complementary. I disagree with them. Um, but I respect their, their right to hold that view. Uh, my, my argument to counter whatever they would say is that um, people are tending to go along with the Yes campaign based purely on emotion rather than rational thought. And when people say that this is going to be the stepping stone towards a whole range of other rights for Aborigines, come on. You know, that is wonderful, emotive language, but it is just unrealistic. And it's just raising people's expectations onto an absurd level. What about constitutional recognition of Indigenous people, of First Nations people? It's it's unfinished business. To, to The idea is that it's unfinished business to not be there in that uh, document which lies at the foundation of the Australian state. Well... From 2004 to 2016, every state in Australia changed their constitutions to acknowledge the fact that Aboriginal people were here first. So that's already been done. And not a single right flowed to Aboriginal people as a result of those acknowledgements. It would make absolutely no more no difference if it was acknowledged in the federal constitution. And we might all say, oh, well, look, you know, it's the founding document. It is a document created by white people for the benefit of a white Australian nation. And putting a few words either in the preamble or somewhere in the constitution will not change the nature and character of the Australian constitution and all of the institutions that are set up underneath it. Michael Mansell, Tasmanian Aboriginal leader, uh, a Palawa man, lawyer and, and long-time activist, Th thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. My pleasure, Damien. Next week and in coming weeks, we will be speaking to those with very different views about The Voice. That's all we have time for on The Law Report. A big thanks to producer Lyndall Rollins and Elise Simons. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more Law. <laughs>